You guys are quiet this morning. I expected it to go longer. <laughs> I don't know. Um, let me open us in prayer as we look into 1 Corinthians 15. Father, we come recognizing this morning that you do, you work. As we think about the passage that we're going to look at, Jesus' work in accomplishing the gospel, in establishing the church, in raising up apostles, and in doing work in the lives of the body, um, we recognize that you work. We recognize that you are at work in the things we just saw about, say, families. We recognize you're at work in answering the prayers that we pray. And so we ask this morning as we come that we would be aware that you're meeting with us, that you are sanctifying us, even as we hear your word proclaimed, that your spirit is at work, and that in the same way that Jesus rose from the dead, the, the spirit is present, continuing to accomplish the ministry you have purposed to accomplish until you come and bring that resolution of all things. And so we pray as we look at this passage that you would speak to us, that you would transform us, and that we would recognize your work in our lives, both individually and as a body. Um, Lord, please help us to see you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to be looking today at 1 Corinthians 15, and, and I'd like to start by reading the passage, so if you have it. Unlike EC, I'm reading from the ESV. EC always reads from the NIV, and so I just usually listen to them. But if you have the ESV, I'd encourage you to, to read with me as I read it aloud. Um, if you have different versions and you're comfortable in having multiple input, do that as well. But, but it's going to be in the ESV this morning. So, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, <clears throat> he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and this grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. I want to focus on the work Jesus accomplishes, on the work that Paul accomplishes, and on the work the church accomplices. All of this is based on the fact that Jesus did what he did. Jesus came. Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became Jesus. And, and Jesus started at the birth or the conception 
the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about the life of Christ in Mary. But before that, he was the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Forever after that, he is Jesus, God and man in one person. But Jesus came, God the Son became man because that was necessary for our salvation to be accomplished. Jesus had to live. Because there had to be a humanity as well as the deity. There had to be that combination of God and man in one person so that the perfect could overcome the law, could fulfill all the demands of the law and live that obedient life that did not require punishment. But if God did everything right and had no interaction with man, we would have no Savior. So it's Jesus, God and man in one person, who came, who lived, who fulfilled the law, and who, not necessary for himself, but necessary for us, died. And that's what Paul begins with, that Christ died in order to deal with our sins. We've, we've talked at different times and in different messages about the implications of that death. We, we recognize that there is that humanity that had to suffer the reality of a physical death, but, but the Son had to suffer the wrath of the Father and the Spirit on our behalf. And that death was a spiritual and a physical death which is represented by the fact that Jesus, God and man in one person, was buried. He was really dead. He really paid the debt of our sin. But what's remarkable is that he rose. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The death accomplishes the payment for our sin. So why did he have to rise? He rose to give life and to give a demonstration of the reality of the effectiveness of his redemption. He didn't simply defeat death. He demonstrated that he defeated death. He doesn't simply feed us, but this morning as we take the Lord's Supper, he tangibly feeds us as a sign of his love. It's also a spiritual feeding, and the physical is the sign of the spiritual. But Jesus accomplished redemption, and he reveals the success of that work. So Paul, who's writing the book, this letter to the Corinthians, preaches the gospel he received. And it's interesting because he talks about how he received the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's, he's pointing out that this is not his manufactured story. And as you think about how Paul received this gospel, he received it from the hand of the Lord. Part of what Paul is doing is, is talking about the reality of his apostleship. He's not simply a preacher. He's not simply one who is a missionary taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He is that apostle 
whom Christ called on the road to Damascus. In a really remarkable way, the risen Christ met with Saul, the persecutor of the church, in order to call him to faith, but not simply to call Saul to believe in Jesus, but to call Paul the apostle who would build the church amongst the Gentiles. And we get a foreshadowing in that of what it means for us to receive the gospel. But Paul preaches that gospel, and he talks about the fact that Christ died for sin, that he was buried, that he rose on, on the third day, according to the scriptures. Christ is victorious. And as the quotes on the front of our bulletin talk about, that resurrection is the demonstration of the presence of the kingdom. I'll talk more about that when I look at the role of the church, but it's really important for us to understand that this is not a personal interaction between the risen Christ and Saul. And in fact, the risen Christ speaks to the church in Damascus and tells them that Paul is coming and that Saul is no longer a threat to the church. He's no longer a danger to the believers in Damascus. He is now one in, in, a, in a beginning form of the leaders of the church. It's the kingdom. When Jesus first preaches in the synagogues, he talks about that the kingdom of God has come. In his resurrection, he declares the presence of the kingdom of God here. And so I like N.T. Wright's quote, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's prayer is about. And then again, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. This is a shocking reality. It is the kingdom of God, not merely the relationship of believers with their Savior. And so I want to focus the bulk of our time this morning on the church. And so Paul talks about multiple stages. He talks about um, I, the gospel I preached to you, which you received. That's a very benign statement. In, in meetings, we receive documents, which means simply they're on the table, we have them. Paul is not leaving it with reception, but, but the church starts with having received the gospel. The believer and the church together start by having received the gospel. It's there. We possess it. But then he talks about the idea of believing. This is something we recognize the truth. We don't simply receive it. We embrace it. It is the truth by which we live. It is the reality of our existence. And so there are implications about what it means to believe the gospel. God is in charge, and we live under his rule. You can't believe in a Savior without believing in a Lord. 
The implications of that are huge. Jesus is not a benign savior who simply says, I will rescue you and leave you alone. I think many Christians, including me, earlier in my, my relationship with Jesus, have this really horrible fantasy. God, love me enough to save me for heaven and leave me alone until heaven. That's the fire insurance mindset that what I really want from Jesus is the ability to live my life here and now, and the best possible world would be that in which on my deathbed, while I'm yet cognizant and clear-minded, I could say, okay, now I'll let you take over. What a pathetic way of thinking. God says, I can't love you that little. Do you not understand that the reality is that sin is a state of misery? That sin warps you? That those things that promise you pleasure and satisfaction and wonder and joy rob you, dull you, kill you? I love you too much for that. I love you so much that I will save you for heaven and from sin. Sin is not something to toy with, to play with, to find as an attractive alternative. Sin is death. And Jesus, praise him, loves you too much to let you play with that. We were talking in, in the Sunday school class, we're, we're really looking at the issue of relationships, but in the context of relationships, what we're looking at is the individuals in relationship. And two fully committed sinners can't relate well. Two fully committed sinners are busy destroying not only themselves, but each other. And if what you want to do in that state is simply have a pretense of good relationship while you throw yourself fully into the practice of your sin, it means the best you can possibly hope for is an illusion. It is a fantasy. So we look at the idea of not only restored relationships that are real and deep and solid and life-giving, but we look at the reality of sanctification because the only way I can be a participant in that kind of relationship is that if I'm being the man Christ calls me to be. Sanctification is an essential part of my life as a believer. It's an essential part of the relationships in which I live. But sanctification is so much more. Because God doesn't sanctify a group of individuals who run around having their own way, doing their own thing, and living independently. God sanctifies the body of Christ. He sanctifies us as a kingdom. He sanctifies us to be in relationship. Even in the creation, God says, let us make man in our image. And then it says, male and female, he created them. But he didn't make a family. He made a kingdom. We might think, well, we can extend this relationship to marriage and and sort of build a relationship with a spouse, it's much easier to deal with one other person. 
But when I focus on dealing with a limited number of people, whether it's a wife or children or extended family, I'm limiting my dream of sanctification. I need all of you and so many more. Each of you brings a different perspective, a different awareness, a different view of me. And honestly, in a selfish way, I need you to help me to grow. I will not be the best me without you. But neither will you. And the more we limit the number of people who we interact with, the more we limit the number of people who can speak into our lives, hopefully as people, multiples said in the group, gently, trustworthily, but yet still need to speak into our lives in order that we might grow to be the people God has created us to be. But it's not just that we individually experience the blessings of that fellowship, it's that we as a people transform the community. That's one of the implications of believing the reality of the gospel. God is in charge and we live under his rule. As Lord, he calls us to be his body, to be his hands and feet together corporately enacting changes in the community. We don't just simply look at how we grow as a church, we look at how we as a church grow the churches, how we as churches grow the community. And that's a wonderful thing that Safe Families is beginning to build in us, is a larger understanding of the calling of the kingdom. Not only is God in charge, but God is good. And we can trust him. God has demonstrated that goodness in that he came to save. He didn't stay at a distance and say, when you get your act together, we can have a relationship, because he knew we'd never get our act together. God pursues, and as you look at scriptures, you see from Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation how God pursues. We sin, we run, we flee. Jesus came. Emmanuel. God is so good. And yet we fear him. Not necessarily just with a sense of awe at his majesty like Isaiah did in the beginning of Isaiah that we read today. We fear that what he wants for us is not our best. We're foolish. We are so foolish. Part of where I think I've seen me and others that I know well wrestle with the goodness of God is in that calling to kingdom. It's so much easier to think, God, I love the fact that you saved me. I love the fact that you've given me heaven. I love the fact that I can trust your provision and your protection. Just don't upset the apple cart and make me do it with others. Don't send me out. Don't give me a bigger vision. And again, he says, I love you too much. So we're called then to stand in the gospel. We receive, we believe, we stand. That's a life of obedience. That's our response 
to the goodness of God, now moving forward saying, okay, I see you, I trust you, I believe you, I will actively participate with you. And one of the verses that's really helpful in that context is John 14, 15. Jesus is speaking to his disciples as he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's about to be arrested, tried, betrayed, crucified, and in those last moments with the disciples, following the time in the upper room and in transition to the garden, he says, if you love me. Well, why would we love him? Well, he came. Son of God became Jesus, God and man in one person, in order to live a life that fulfills the law, in order to die a death that's unnecessary for him, but absolutely critical for us. And he is in those moments where he is about to be arrested. And he says, if you love me. Brothers and sisters, we have to see who Jesus is. We have to actively look. We have to consider him. We have to recognize the love that he has lavished upon us. Or we won't love him. There are two centers of gravities in our lives. There's us, and we have a rubber band that keeps pulling us back to us. And what we desperately need is for Jesus to break that rubber band and allow that greater glory, that greater person, that greater wonder of Christ to consume us. So that we partner with him and obey him out of a love for him that fuels the way that we live because he is so worthy of that love. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. It's an amazing passage. It's one that's hard sometimes to believe it's in the Old Testament. And in the midst of God talking about giving us a new heart and giving us a new spirit, he says this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This life in Christ who has saved us, who has called us to stand in the reality of the gospel, gives us the grace and the spirit to stand. But that calling is a corporate calling of saved individuals. We don't have a part if we are not uniquely and individually transformed. We don't have a part if we are not individually justified. We don't have a part if we're not individually sanctified. But we can't stop at individual because we belong to Christ. He's the head and we, we universally across time and space are the body. And we, as the body, exist to build the kingdom because we, as the body, are the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, it can't be a private faith. It can't be a personal relationship exclusively. If we're going to stand in the reality of the gospel, we stand together. When we begin to make this a private, personal, pietistic relationship with a Savior, who saves me? And that's the end of my thought. 
we believe in vain. We have not understood our Savior, and we have not understood the gospel. One last thought I want to bring is that I want us to look at how the Spirit is actively at work in us. Because in the same way that Jesus rose from the dead and demonstrated the reality of his accomplishment, he has promised us the Spirit. And sometimes we, even when we think corporate, but especially when we think private, personal, individual, we lose sight of the presence of God in our lives today. And our faith can become something we do. Our faith can be something we shelve. It can be something that we remember on Sunday. And when we go on Monday to work, Jesus isn't a part of our lives. The Holy Spirit isn't someone we focus upon. We go to our classes, we go to our work, we deal with our home, we deal with our kids, we deal with our community, and we do it as an individual cut off from our Savior. We have the Spirit. He is at work in every aspect of our lives. And one of the things that I want to just give you as a way to think about that today is we get ready to come to the Lord's Supper. Everything you do is an act of worship. Everything you do. The question is, of whom? How you drive on the freeway is an act of worship. It'll either be a worship of self and schedule and time, or it'll be an act of worship in Jesus, and you'll think kingdom. You'll think beyond yourself. How you eat is an act of worship. What you spend, what you give, how you sleep, how you tie your shoes, every aspect of your life is an act of worship. And the Holy Spirit is present in every moment of your life. Years back, there used to be rubberized silicon bracelets that had WWJD on them. What would Jesus do? It was an attempt to try and remind us that truth, that everything we do is an act of worship. How you fight with your spouse, or your kids, or your neighbors, is an act of worship. And the Holy Spirit is present in every moment. Brothers and sisters, we're part of the kingdom because the gospel is true. We have the opportunity to stand in the reality of that gospel. And my prayer is that we will do that. Let me pray. Father, we do come and recognize that you are our creator. You are the one to whom we owe worship. Uh, you are the one we have abandoned. I pray that you would help us to keep clear in our mind, our hearts, our lives, that you are our Savior, that you are our sanctifier. I pray that we would recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit in every moment of our lives, that we would be this week struck when we have wandered from worshiping you with the reality that, like Isaiah, we have done evil.
in it like Isaiah. You would remind us that redemption has been accomplished and it has been given to us. Give us fluency in the language of repentance. Help us to have hearts, minds, and attitudes that can see our sin and confess quickly because you've given us your spirit in order to obey your commands. You sent Jesus to be the one that we can love as we see him, and I pray that he would be more focused of our life than he ever has been. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work in us to create a people who will bring you glory. In your name we pray. Amen.